0: I got the nerve of Succos, everybody. If my voice is a little below today, hopefully, maybe this will be the best way to record. If my voice low, so that I don't sound like I'm screaming at everybody, because I'm most definitely not. Okay, we're starting off with praying with joy for Parsha Saman. Behovoi, Velebe Vizo, Beheter, Velebe Easter, Kedeshanucha Lava, the Vede Sacha Volumai Teraseha, Kamashazanta, La Visenu, Mun, by midboy, by Varava. By Mesha, Hinam Tilachem Lachemina the Var Yemby Laman and the Seno Yedoch Besarasim Loy. Behoya by Mashishi, Vichino Schevi, Alasha The Era, and בביתך רישים ומשתתים בדנאי hi <laughs> daber dak kakfar kfar ala aryat yiru bnay star yermu ish allah khif manhu kilayado mahu wa yermu ish allah yam hu halakh mashan nasan la akhla zaa adava shatiba adina likto mena ish allah fi akhla ayma lagul goles mi spanish say kham ish allah shaba alayti kakhu wa yasukhin bnay star yulkto amabe wa amamit wa yermu do vaymerv amamit la akhu ish fi akhla lakatu wa yermu ish allah ish ad yasmi ad baika בליישמהו למאישה ויאישירו אנשי מימנו עד ביכר וירמ תילויים ויאיבאש וייקצה פלי אמאישה ויהל כתו איסר בביكر בביكر איש כفى אכלו וخام השמש וنمוס והיה ביאם shabbos eifu ويا نيهو ايسا و Ahu, Nice lochem, bye ma shishi lochem, ye moim, shavu ish tachta, valietzi ish m'koma, bye ma shvi. Bye ish besuwa om, bye ma shvi, ve yikru besi srala shemai mon, ve hu kezeera god lovan, ve taimeketze pihimid wash, ve yemememeshe, zeha dava sher tzivadinoi, meloya oemer menu lubishmerslodere sechem, a man you, esalechem, ashera khalti eschem, a midbar, ve yetzi eschem, a yet mitzorim, ve yemeshe lahirin kachtsin senes achats, vesenchem, meloya oemer mon, vahanachai seilifniadinoi lubishmerslodere sechem, we're Lifna up to Friday, day ninety seven. Of course, that's last Friday. Just as Hashem commanded Maisha, so Aharon pl- so placed it to be kept in front of the Aaron Kodesh. Shemais chapter 16, verse 34. Principle of Amun and Bittachem derived from this verse. Hashem has many ways to bring his people their Parnassah. Why does this verse first tell us, just as Hashem commanded Meishe, and only afterwards does it refer to the action, so Aharon placed it? The Torah does not use this style anywhere else. Generally, it adds the words, as Hashem commanded Meishe, at the end of a verse. Since it was forbidden to leave the mon over until the next day, how could harin have been permitted to set aside mon to last for many generations? The Torah answers these, this question by prefacing this verse with a statement of direct command, just as Hashem commanded Moshe, to make it absolutely clear that harin acted on Hashem's directive, and because Hashem had commanded that this Aymer measure of mon be kept, it never rotted and no worms infected it. It stayed fresh through the centuries. Why was the man placed in front of the Aaron Kaidish in the inner sanctum of the the tabernacle and later of the Beis HaMikdash? Our sages explained that the main purpose of the jar of man was to urge B'nai Yisrael, as the prophet Yerim did, to study Torah and not to ask, but how will we find our livelihood? The man demonstrated that Hashem can sustain people in many different ways. Therefore, the jar of man was placed near the Ruchais, the tablets of the law, because its purpose was to facilitate the fulfillment of the Torah. The Rambam writes, each and every person living in the world who volunteers himself and makes a conscious decision to distinguish himself by standing before Hashem and serving him so that he may come to recognize Hashem, and he continues in a path of righteousness in the manner that Hashem planned for him, and he casts off from his neck the yoke of the worldly considerations that most people pursue, this person becomes Kaidish Kadashim, sanctified with the highest level of holiness. The Rambam calls such a person, Kaddish Kadashim, sanctified at the highest level of holiness. The jar of man was located next to the Luchas to demonstrate that when a person casts his lot with Hashem, he will surely receive his basic needs. Shabbos, day 98. And B'nai Israel ate the man for 40, days, for 40 years, until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the mon until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Shemais, chapter 16, verse 35. Principle of Emunah and Bittachin derived from this verse. It is not possible to ascend the spiritual ladder all at once. It is necessary to climb gradually, step by step. Yeah, I should take that to heart. Forty years of mon. The words of this verse imply that B'nai Israel ate mon for 40 years, not only because this was the duration of their wanderings in the desert, But because Hashem intended them to eat mun for this specific amount of time, why was this necessary? Were it not for the sin of the spies, the people would not have needed to eat mun, Because their spiritual level was so high, the tests of the mun would have been unnecessary. They could have lived in the desert without eating anything at all. The sin of the spies betrayed a lack of trust in Hashem. In Bamidbar chapter 14 verse 11, Until when will you believe in me? The reason... No, sorry. Until when will you not believe in me? The reason they had to eat the man for 40 years was that this test was needed in order to raise their level of bitachon and amunah and Hashem, and this could be achieved only gradually over the course of many years. Week 15, Sunday, day 99, the taste of man. Rashi on this verse teaches, it would seem that the period of 40 years was missing 30 days. The man rained down for them for the first time on the 15th. On the 5th of Iyar, and it stopped on the 5th of Nisan, leaving an apparent discrepancy of a full 30 days. This teaches us that the matzah that B'nai Yisrael took out of Egypt tasted like man. What was this special taste of man that the people tasted when they left Egypt? After all, the man could taste like anything one wanted to taste in it. It seems that the main taste of man was like wafers fried in honey. As the verse in Pasha Saman, Shemais, chapter sixteen, verse thirty-one states, later Bamidbar, chapter eleven, verse eight, the Torah teaches that that its taste was like dough kneaded in oil. Rashi explains that it was like dough kneaded in oil and glazed with honey. This then was the taste of the cakes B'nai Yisrael took out of Egypt. It is also possible that the people could taste anything they liked in the cakes they took out of Egypt, just as in the man, which could take on different colors and flavors. In this way, the cakes had the same taste of man. In truth, the nation needed to eat man as soon as they left Egypt, so that they could have man to eat for exactly 40 years. However, immediately upon leaving the corrupt and impure environment of Egypt, they could not yet eat food as exalted as the heavenly man, the very food that angels eat, which was totally spiritual and pure. B'nai Yisrael needed to grow accustomed gradually to a more spiritual food. First, they ate earthly bread with the addition of the taste of man that Hashem added to it. Eating this bread for 30 days enabled them to rise spiritually to a level at which they were able to eat the man itself. We're up to enlighten our eyes. Chapter 3. Purity of Thought. Worlds gained in an instant. The Balatanya is an excellent source on this issue of purity of thought. It's no disgrace, he writes, to have such thoughts pushing their way in and trying to steal the limelight. On the contrary, it's an opportunity granted us to firmly eject them, thereby avoiding the Torah prohibition, as it says in Bamidbar, chapter 15, verse 39, do not stray after your heart and your eyes. Not every mitzvah calls for an action. Here is a case of a passive mitzvah, and every time we try to switch to a more kosher line of thought, it earns us rewards equal to a mitzvah saseh. When we refuse to yield to unwanted images tugging at our mind's eye, we have reason to feel elevated and even joyous, equal to the simcha shel mitzvah when performing the mitzvah of sukkah and lulav. But you protest. How can I rejoice considering how low I must be if such dishonorable thoughts keep entering my mind? Here, the Balatanya, in Likuti Amarim, chapter 23 and 28, with one stroke of his masterful pen, swings our mood around 180 degrees. He makes us feel not battered, but flattered. He tells us, he tells of how there are two types of nachas ruach, delight, before Hashem. The first type is that of the extremely righteous who vanquish the evil elements inside them forever. The second type is the average man who constantly battles against the appealing impurities all around. His task is to keep on shoving away impure thoughts coming from the heart and proceeding towards the mind. This causes tremendous effects in the heavenly realms. Shall we try to imagine what transpires in Shemayim when a Yid finds unholy thoughts and sensations rising inside him and dutifully, and dutifully quells them at once? The words of the Zayar and Parshas Truma give us a keyhole glimpse which reveals how the Sitra Achra, source of all evil, is firmly settled on his perch like a mighty eagle, a bleak prospect indeed, who is able to unseat this towering menace. Suddenly, an act of an act performed on earth is reported. Ooh, we gotta do this with good background music, but, but um, I don't know how to do that yet. malach announces: so-and-so has just controlled his thoughts and quietly denied himself a minor indulgence. In defiance of today's decidedly casual, fun-loving society, he chose to crown Hashem as Melech over himself, his body, and his soul. Immediately the Sitra Achra's power is weakened. For we have a principle that overcoming our Sitra Achra in this world correspondingly unseats the mighty Sitra Achra in the upper spiritual worlds. He is demoted, and a sublime light spreads all across the heavens. The light of this one small deed radiates up to the furthermost celestial spheres. As for our unsung hero below... Chazal in yaima 39a promised that a person need only sanctify himself a little, and Shemayim will pour sanctity upon him in abundance. Thank you, Hashem. Some individuals may have a particular immoral fantasy that has been challenging them for years. Again, this is no cause to feel hopeless. This could actually be the purpose of his having been created. It is his personal task that Hashem has entrusted him to privately keep on championing Kedusha Samarshava and raising its flag ever higher. Facebook doesn't help. The Balatanya continues that if the unwanted sight keeps vividly reappearing and replaying itself in your mind, the way to dismiss those unwanted thoughts is to completely ignore them and turn your mind to a totally different subject. Strike up a conversation with someone, sing yourself a song, la la la, or just distract yourself in some other way. Concentrate on something else completely, anything. That's far healthier and more practical than trying to push those images out of your mind. If there is a person standing in a cyclist's path, the cyclist would not confront him with logical arguments, but will swiftly swerve. Never try to deal with undesirable thoughts directly. Just as touching mud gets your hands all dirty, so too struggling with evil brings you in close contact with it. Wow. Just focus your thoughts on something else. Engross yourself in your chosen topic. With Hashem's help, you will succeed. In conclusion, the Baal Atanya sheds light on something that poses a real riddle, an occurrence we meet up with all too often. Why do bothersome thoughts often choose to, pre- to present themselves right in the middle of our learning or davening? What do we really want to do? Approach our Creator? Or, Lahavdil, follow our base desires? Can we assume that our avodah is therefore worthless? Surely, if my davening or learning would be of worth, these forbidden thoughts would not be popping up. This phenomena calls for some clarification. Two distinct yet coexisting forces are at work here. Thoughts of Taira and Yira emanate from the godly soul within us, while desires for materialism have their source in our animalistic nefesh. The two opposing forces are permanently engaged in a power struggle, vying for control. As soon as our Yetzer Ta'iv takes charge, the satan's side feels threatened and rushes desperately to entrench itself deeper into the, into the mind. This explains those unsolicited, distracting thoughts that arise out of the blue. It doesn't mean something is wrong. It's just the satan having an allergic reaction to our spiritual sincerity. The two combatants function simultaneously while independently. Hence, despite the tzad hatuma reacting so fiercely against one's learning and davening, it is a separate entity One cannot therefore conclude that his service to the king of kings is unworthy. Our mitzvah, though under attack, remains of immense value and has in no way gone down the drain. We are currently currently up to Shlesha Ma'amarem's second discourse, Torah, prayer, and singing to Hashem, part 8. From the above discussion, we may conclude that just as God cannot be perceived by the physical senses, so too every spark of the Kedusha of God's light, even those which have been drawn down and constricted within us, cannot be perceived by the human intellect. Our intellect is only capable of surmising the presence of Kedusha and spirituality, but not perceiving it or knowing its essence. Only through arousing our soul and the aspect of the Bnei neviim within us may we at times get a glimpse of a spark of the supernal lights. However, we must prepare ourselves to enable this Raha of the aspect of the benenavim to enter and dwell within us, this requires that we bind our whole being to the service of God. Purifying ourselves in His kedusha, our bodies, we, our bodies, we must distance ourselves from all sins and their residue, using them to actively fulfill mitzvahs. Our hearts need to be occupied with character refinement, and the voice of Tyre and Tefillah, and our minds engrossed in the thoughts of kedusha. And deep Torah study. This is the fulfillment of the verse in Devera Yomim Aleph, chapter 28, verse 9. Know the God of your father and serve him. Only through serving Hashem, avayda, can you know the little knowledge of God that can be drawn down to you as described above. The meaning of the word avayda, work, must be differentiated from the word shimush, service. Nearly every word that makes mention of man serving God, the term shimush is not used. Rather, the term avayda. This is because avayda implies an activity on the part of the servant which demands his effort and fatigues him. Whereas shimush may be accomplished by performing certain tasks without expending any effort. Clearly, it is impossible to know God through mere shimush. In the first discourse, we discussed the analogy of the funnel. In order to show that everything that a Jew can, compre- can apprehend concerning spiritual matters is actually only his own nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yechida. From this, one might deduce that when the nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yechida are constricted into the Jewish man, they are his alone and pertain and relate only to him. Now that with the help of God, our discussion has reached this far, we would like to enter further into this matter, and God willing to explain a little more. Namely, the Jewish man is not an isolated private individual, but rather the neshama and foundation of the world. Not only this physical world, but verily the neshama and foundation of all of the higher and lower worlds. This is because the vessels and the constriction of the nefesh within the Jew are not just his own. Rather, they are also included in the mechanism of the revelation of God in the world. And without them, the absence of revelation would render it utterly impossible to perceive him. We will now preface the words of the Pardes Remainim, Gate 6, Chapter 2, which raises a question... On the way we view the orientation of light of right and left in the upper worlds, as we say in the Petach Eliyahu, Chesed is the right arm and Gavura is the left arm. The Pardes asks why we do not say the opposite: that Chesed is on the left side of the one above, and Gavura is on the right side. For when a man stands facing another, his right side is toward the left side of his fellow, and his left is his fellow's right. That is indeed why, when we finish the Amida, we bow first to the left. Which is the right side of the one above, the Pardes offers several solutions to this question, and in the course of his holy words, he states truthfully, at the highest transcendent level, there is no right or left. Everything is a unity, single and unique, it is absolute, true oneness. Furthermore, man in all his limbs bears the image of the supernal form, a shadow of the supernal form which takes on a corporeal a corporeal existence as it manifests an ethereal reflection that was pushed down to this world the shadow of man's right corresponds to the right side of his divine source as such man's right corresponds to the supernal right side and man's left corresponds to the left our intention here is not to explain his answer distinguishing between bowing after the amida versus the order of the spheres but rather to understand his holy words in the explanation that above in the highest of realms there is no left or right only complete unity these words are true according to all explanations and reliable in all, res- in all respects. Indeed, they are the very foundation of our faith. In his other explanation, he says that man is the shadow of the supernal form, and the image of the supernal form in all his limbs. And the shadow of man's right corresponds to the right side at his divine source. According to this statement, there is right and left in the realms above. These two holy statements seemingly contradict one another, God forbid. However, we can somewhat understand their reconciliation, according to the the, the their reconcil- yeah I think I got that one right their rec- no the reconciliation, according to the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev and his holy disciples, may their memories be for a blessing, as we will be explained now at length. In the third section of the first discourse, we discussed an analogy for the influence of the soul using man's five senses, sight, hearing, etc. Now we will expand upon this discussion further. Even though all of man's senses and faculties come from the nefesh, still we do not say that man has many souls. One exclusively for sight, another exclusively for hearing, and so forth. Rather, we say that the nefesh is one simple unity. The nefesh is one simple unity, yet it is nonetheless suited to the particulars of the various organs of the body. All of the specific faculties of the body are contained in the nefesh, hidden within its simplicity. When a particular organ with its specific capacity extracts power from the nefesh and reveals it, it is according to the organ that a particular sense or faculty is activated. For example, the eyes, through their unique characteristics, reveal the power of the nefesh of sight, while the ears, with their specific abilities, serve to reveal the capacity of the nefesh to hear. The extraction of the power of the nefesh and the manifestations of that power in the organ happens simultaneously with the activation of the particular organ. As a result, if someone covers his eyes for a long period of time, he will lose his sight. This is because by not activating and drawing out power from his nefesh to his eyes for a long time, he severs the communication and connection between the two. Not only the soul's capacity for sense perception and human physical faculties, which are shared with animals, such as sight, hearing, taste, and touch are activated by the physical organs of the body. But even the faculties of the neshama, which are contained in the oneness of the nefesh and neshama, also manifest themselves through bodily vessels and their activities occur through various physical means. For example, chachma is revealed through the activity of the brain. In order for simple chachma to be revealed through man's simple nefesh as specific matters of wisdom and intellect, such as understanding the Gemara regarding damages, the tractates of of, of Kachim, the the inter- collation of the Jewish calendar or the mathematics represented by the olive Bays and Gematrias, he needs to use his brain and activate his intellect in these matters. If one does not actively engage in these disciplines, then despite any natural faculties for wisdom, he will not understand them at all regardless of his desire. If a child grows up in the forest, far away from civilization, and is not active in any pursuit of wisdom, then he will not understand even basic matters of human intellect. That is not to say that the nefesh has no inherent intelligence. On the contrary, the root of the intellect and wisdom are in the nefesh. It is just that these faculties are hidden in the simple unity of the nefesh. One needs to employ and activate the brain in order to bring out portions of wisdom from the nefesh which are expressed in particular forms and in particular disciplines of wisdom. The wisdom of the child who grows up in the forest remains hidden and undefined, within the nefesh precisely because its powers have not been revealed in the various forms of particular wisdom. This is the difference between the bodily faculties and senses which are revealed from the nefesh and the more spiritual powers which are revealed from the nefesh like the intellect. The eyes, for example, constantly see images and are always active. So we do not realize that only through their actual functioning do the eyes extract and reveal the faculties of the nefesh. It is only when one would close his eyes for a significant period of time that he would see how he has henceforth lost his sight. But with the intellect, since matters of wisdom are not constantly present before it, one is aware at the outset that only through activating and exercising the mind by dealing with matters of wisdom does he succeed in drawing simple wisdom from the nefesh down into particular forms of wisdom. Um, Let me see if I should continue. I want to see how far this goes. I know I should have looked before. But um, I didn't look far enough. Okay, I think I'm going to stop over here. Thank you for listening to this segment. We'll continue with Lessons in Tanya. We are currently up to Lessons in Tanya, Chapter 9. In the previous chapters, the Rebbe elaborated on the composition of the Jew's divine soul with its ten holy soul powers and three soul garments and 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 his animal soul with its corresponding ten powers and three garments originating in klipa. In the present chapter, the Alter Rebbe will discuss the battle fought within the Jew between these two souls. Pay attention, Shmueli, Shmuel Chaim. The abode of the animal soul derived from Klipas Noiga in every Jew, i.e. the place where the animal soul, the Nefesh HaBahamis, resides and is most manifest, is in the heart. For as mentioned in previous chapters, the animal soul is predominantly emotional and the heart is the seat of the emotion. More specifically, the abode of the animal soul is in the left ventricle as it is filled with blood and it is written for the blood is the soul, the nefesh, indicating that the soul resides in that ventricle filled with blood, the left ventricle. Because the animal soul resides in the heart, therefore, all lusts and boasting and anger and similar passions are in the heart. And from the heart, they spread throughout the entire body. Rising also to the brain in the head to think and meditate about them and to become cunning in them. Just as the blood has its source in the heart, and from the heart it circulates into every organ, rising also to the brain and the head. Similarly, the the soul, the nefesh, clothed in the blood, abides in the heart and spreads out from there to pervade one's entire body. Thus, in the case of the animal soul, the brain, the intellectual faculties too, instead of motivating the heart and guiding it, merrily reacts to it and serves only as a clever tool for realizing the passions of the heart. But the abode of the divine soul is in the brains that are in the head, and from there it extends to all of the limbs. The divine soul is essentially intellective. And the brain is the seat of intellect. The divine soul resides also in the heart, in the right ventricle, where there is no blood. As it is written, the heart of the wise man, i.e. the divine soul, in contrast with the animal soul, specifically the evil inclination, the Yetzir Hara, which is described as an old fool, is on his right. We thus see that the Divine Soul resides not only in the brain, but in the right ventricle of the heart as well. As he did when speaking of the animal soul, the Alter Rebbe again singles out the heart from among all the other organs, having said that the Divine Soul extends to all the organs. He mentions the heart specifically, and also in the heart, for unlike the other organs in which merrily the extension of the Divine Soul is manifest, in the heart the Divine Soul itself, i.e. its emotional faculties, is revealed. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to explain this point. Vhi ahavas shemker safi shalheves. This revelation in the heart of the divine soul residing in the brain is man's fiery love towards God. Misla maskilim which flares up in the heart of discerning men who utilize their power of chachmah. Hamavinim umisbininim who understand and reflect with their faculty of bina, understanding by which they understand the matter and all its details and ramifications with the knowledge of their brain, with their faculty of das, knowledge, by which they immerse themselves and sensitize themselves in that which they understand. Thus, the love flares up in the hearts of those who utilize all three faculties of chachma, bina, and das. One on matters that arouse this love, i.e., in contemplation of God's greatness, as the Rebbe will soon conclude. For as explained in the third chapter, understanding the greatness of God leads one to love him. This love then is one example of the divine souls reaching from the brain into the heart. Similarly, another deeper way in which the heart's emotion gives expression to the presence of the divine soul is the brain in the brain, the gladness of the heart, and apprehending the beauty of God and the majesty of his glory. The gladness that is aroused when the divine soul's intellect, which the Alter Rebbe borrowing a phrase from Caheles describes as the wise man's eyes, which are in his head, meaning in the brain harboring his wisdom and understanding. With these eyes, I intellectual faculties, gaze intently at the glory of the king, and the beauty of his, unf- of his unfathomable, infinite, and boundless greatness, then the heart rejoices and is glad as is, as is explained elsewhere. Gazing with the mind's eye means that one not only understands the greatness of God, but also perceives it as though seeing it with his, fi- with his very eyes. Such perception arouses great joy in one's heart. And this joy, like the love spoken of earlier, is direct result and a manifestation of the intellect of the divine soul residing in the brain. Similarly, the other holy emotions in the heart too, such as fear of God and the like, originate from the Chabad, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, in the brains. The Alter Rebbe has thus established that each of these two souls has its own separate abode and way of functioning. Lest we erroneously conclude that each soul goes about its own affairs, not interfering or concerning itself with those of the other, the Alter Rebbe continues. I think I read that correctly. It is written, however, one nation shall prevail over the other nation. Right. The verse refers to Jacob and Esau. In terms of a Jew's spiritual life, it is understood as an allusion to the divine soul and the animal soul, respectively, who are constantly warring with each other. Shakal Echad writes the Chavsha of for the body is called a small city. The two souls in relation to one's body are just as two kings who wage war over a city, with each which each wishes to capture and dominate even against its will and to rule with the consent of the populace. The Hainu Lahani Geshve kirtsynoi, Vishyiyu, Sarim Lamashmaasai, the yigzar Yigzarlay. That is to say, each king wishes to direct its inhabitants according to his will, so that they obey him and all that he decrees upon them. So too do the the two souls, the divine soul and the vitalizing animal soul, which originates from klipa and is therefore the very antithesis of the divine soul, wage war against each other over the body and all its organs. The body being analogous to the city and the organs to its inhabitants. Here too, each soul wishes to direct the city's inhabitants according to its will, as follows The divine soul's will and desire is that she alone rule over the person and direct him so that all the organs be subject to her discipline, following and obeying her dictates, and furthermore, that they surrender themselves completely to her, i.e. that they not only obey her, but also surrender their will to her. Um, and she shelters, and she desires further still, that all the organs become a chariot for her. The divine soul desires that the organs not only surrender their will to it, implying that they do that they do indeed have a will of their own, though it is surrendered to the soul, but rather... It desires also that they have no will other than its own, similar to a chariot, which has no independent will, but is merely an instrument of its driver. Moreover, the divine soul desires that the organs be also a garment, an instrument of expression, for her ten faculties and three garments of thought, speech, and action mentioned above all of which should clothe the limbs of the body. And the entire body should be permeated with them alone. The bodies being harnessed in service of the divine soul might not preclude its serving the animal soul too on occasion. The Alter Rebbe therefore adds the phrase, the entire body should be permeated by the divine soul alone, emphasizing the divine soul's desire to have exclusive use of the body as an instrument of expression, leaving no place for the faculties and garments of the animal soul. No alien would then so much as pass through the organs, God forbid, I, the animal soul would exert no influence whatever on the body. The above forms a general description of the, of the divine soul's desire to pervade the whole body. The Alte Rebbe now turns to specifics, which organs would, would give expression to each particular faculty or garment, of the divine soul, the Hainu. that is to say, specifically the three brains, the three sections of the brain, which correspond to the three intellectual faculties, chachma, bina, and das, would be permeated with the chabad of the divine soul, namely in discerning God and understanding Him, i.e., applying the faculties of chachma and bina to the understanding of godliness. By pondering his unfathomable and infinite greatness with these two faculties. Through applying to this meditation the faculty of das, knowledge, as well. I. Through immersing oneself in the subject of God's greatness with the depth phys- typical of das, so that one not only understands this greatness, but actually feels it. They, i.e. aforementioned faculties of Chachma and Bina engaged in pondering God's greatness, will give birth to an awe of God in his mind and dread of God in his heart. Thus, not only his mind, but also his heart will be permeated with the faculties of the Divine Soul. The mind, with the Divine Soul's Chabad faculties, pondering God's greatness in the heart, with the Divine Soul's emotions, the fear just mentioned and the love soon to be discussed, arising from this contemplation. There will also be born to, his con- to this contemplation a love of God burning in his heart like a flame, like fiery flashes. His soul will thirst and pine with desire and longing to cleave to the blessed Ein Saif with all his heart. Soul and might, as it is written, and you shall love God, your Lord, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. With all your heart means that the heart is filled with the love of God. With all your soul implies that the love spills over beyond the heart to affect all the organs of the body. The feet, for example, will move with alacrity to do a mitzvah. With all your might means loving God to the point where one will sacrifice his life for him. This love will rise from the depths of the heart, that is, from the right ventricle, the seat of the divine soul's emotional faculties as mentioned above. The kind of love that the divine soul desires entails that the heart be inlaid with love from within. And furthermore, not only would the love be, as it were, on the surface of the heart, but the heart would also be full with the love occupying its entire space, as it were, And furthermore, it would be indeed filled to overflowing. I.e., the love would overflow into the left part of the heart to affect the emotional faculties of the animal soul which reside there. As the Alter Rebbe continues, The love would thus inundate the left part of the heart as well to crush the citra achra, specifically the element of evil water in it, in the animal soul. Meaning the lust emanating from klipas Noiga. As mentioned in chapter 1, the animal soul element of water gives rise to lust for physical pleasures derived from klipas noiga. Now the animal soul spirit of lust is the klipa counterpart of the divine soul spirit of love for God. Thus the divine soul's intense love of God has the power to crush the animal soul's lust for physical pleasures. The effect of the divine soul on the animal soul's element of water would be to change and transform it from a lust for mundane pleasures to a love of God. As it is written, you shall love God with all your heart, which our sages interpret basing themselves on the use of the dual form of the word levavacha instead of Libcha, which allows the verse to imply with all your hearts, with both your natures, with your good inclination, and also with your evil inclination. Accordingly, the evil inclination, i.e. the lust of the animal soul, must also come to love God. And this too is part of the divine soul's battle plan. The Alter Rebbe now describes the specific level of love of God that accomplishes this. This transformation of the animal soul's lust to a love of God entails rising to attain to the level of Ahava Rabbah, abundant love, a love surpassing even the level of the powerful love like fiery flashes that was mentioned earlier. V'hi hanikras b'chasev ahava b'tanugim. This level of love is what the Scripture describes as a'hava betanugim, a love which experiences delights. It is the experience of delight in godliness that is a foretaste of the world to come, since man's reward in the world to come consists of delighting in godliness. Excuse me. This delight is felt in the brain containing chachma, wisdom, and intelligence, which delights in perceiving and knowing God, commensurate with the capacity of one's intelligence and wisdom. The greater one's grasp of godliness, the greater his delight. This delight. ...is the level of water and seed, i.e. light that is sown in the holiness of the Divine Soul... ...which transforms to good the element of water in the animal soul from which the lust for physical pleasure had previously arisen. This means that the element of water in the animal soul, which had previously expressed itself as a desire for physical pleasures now expresses itself as a love of God, having been transformed by the divine soul's love of God. It is similarly written in Itzchaim Portal 50, Chapter 3, on the authority of the Zayar, that the evil of the animal soul is transformed and becomes perfect good. Like the good inclination itself, when it is stripped of its unclean garments, meaning the mundane pleasures in which it had been clothed. The Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, consists of a powerful drive, an appetite for whatever it perceives as good and desirable. This drive is neutral and may be steered in any direction. However, being clothed in a corporal body, it inclines toward physical pleasures. These lusts become unclean garments for the animal's soul's drive. By steering it away from physical pleasures toward an appreciation of spiritual pleasures, the divine soul strips the Atahara of its unclean garments and clothes it in pure garments so that it may apply its powerful appetite for pleasures to godly, holy matters. This then is the divine soul's desire that it create, by means of its intellectual faculties, a fear and love of God so powerful as to transform the animal's soul to good the divine soul further desires that similarity all other emotions of the heart which are offshoots of fear and love be dedicated solely to God thus far the Alter Rebbe has discussed the divine Soul's desire for dom- for Dominion over the mind and heart he now goes on to speak of the other organs of the body the and Also the entire faculty of speech that is in the mouth and the thought that is in the mind be filled exclusively with the divine soul's garments of thought and speech. Namely, thoughts of God and his Torah in which he would speak all day, his mouth never ceasing from study. And the faculty of action vested in his hands and the rest of his 248 organs, this faculty being the third of the garments of the Divine Soul, be engaged in the fulfillment of the mitzvahs, i.e. that he utilize his ability to act solely in the observance of mitzvahs. In summary, the Divine Soul desires that its faculties and garments pervade the body entirely and exclusively. But the animal soul derived from Klippa desires the very opposite. It desires that the body be pervaded with its faculties and its thought, speech, and action. But the animal soul desires this for man's benefit in order that he prevail over her and vanquish her, as in the parable of the harlot related. In the holy Zayar, the parable in the holy Zayar says, a king desired to test the moral strength of his, whole, of his only son. He had a most charming and clever woman brought before him. Explaining to her the purpose of the test, he ordered her to exert every effort to seduce the crown prince. For the test to be valid, the supposed harlot had to use all her charms and guile without betraying her mission in the slightest way. Any imperfection on her part would mean disobedience and the failure of her mission. However, while she uses all her seductive powers, she inwardly desires that the prince should not succumb to them. So too, in our case, the klipa itself desires that man overcome it and not permit himself to be led astray. The entire stratagem is solely for man's benefit. We are up to the Garden of Gratitude, Chapter 4. The Perfect Remedy Many years ago, a woman came to me for guidance because she was childless. She told me she had done everything possible, prayer, repentance, giving charity, undergoing medical treatments, and making dietary changes, among other schemes. She told me that she and her husband were discouraged and close to desperation. Would their salvation ever come? Would they never merit holding their own child? I told this woman she must abandon all these remedies she must even stop praying for children. Instead, I instructed her to devote an hour each day to personal prayer. Thanking Hashem, say thank you, I advised her. Tell Hashem, thank you, that until now you have not given me ch- you have not given me children, because surely it is for the best, and surely this is the way for me to attain my soul correction. I also told her to thank Hashem for every child born to a friend and to work hard to accept all this favorably. Feel genuine joy when you hear of another woman who has given birth, I instructed her. I then told her that every time she succeeds in feeling joy, she should add her own personal request. Master of the universe, may it be or desire that I have children. I then blessed her that she should soon have her own children. The woman replied, in what way is your advice better than anything I have already done? After all, I have prayed, cried, pleaded, repented. I responded. The difference between what you have done so far and what I have instructed you to do is to express gratitude. Through thankfulness, you will attain amuna. Gratitude is an expression of true faith that everything is for the good and precisely according to Hashem's will, with no mistakes. Expressing gratitude reflects your amuna, your trust that everything is in Hashem's hands, and the reason you have you have not yet had children is because this is Hashem's will. Childless women fall into despair because they believe that, according to the laws of nature, they will not be able to bear children. In this respect, despair signifies that a person is depending upon circumstance and nature rather than on Hashem. Such a person blames external causes and is usually angry at Hashem, whining and weeping out of ingratitude. Thankfulness repents for whining, despair, and complaining. Only through gratitude can a person attain complete emuna, Awesome joy. All the tribulations a person must endure during his life are for his, internal, are for his eternal benefit. And if one ponders the true purpose of these trials, one can in fact find great joy in them. Rabbi Nachman writes in Likutei Meheran 165, Even the woes and tribulations a person must suffer, if one contemplates them, he will see that they are not bad at all rather for his benefit, for they are given to him intentionally by Hashem for his own good, in order to remind him to do teshuva and to repent for his sins. All of his suffering is only for his good, for they are delivered by Hashem and Hashem is all good. Therefore, if a person contemplates the trials and tribulations he is facing, he will see that the true purpose of the suffering is for his benefit. And he will thereupon realize that all this suffering is truly entirely good. And he will be filled with joy to see that in truth there is no bad in the world and everything is good. No one wants to suffer. But if we do encounter suffering in our lives, the Rabbi Nachman explains that it is all for our ultimate benefit. The purpose of tribulations is to bring us closer to Hashem. King David said, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Psalms chapter 73. One who understands that suffering is for his eternal benefit, avoids sadness and despair. Indeed. He'll be able to praise Hashem sincerely and pray f- and pray in earnest. Someone who does not seek closeness to Hashem won't joyfully accept anything that he perceives as being bad. However, a person who longs to be close with Hashem realizes that everything is a result of divine providence and everything is intended for his eternal benefit. Whining, the source of all evil. A couple came to seek my advice after the husband had been... In an accident, both the husband and wife complained how difficult their lives were and cried about how bitter their lives had become. Obviously, their complaints could be readily understood. After all, life is easier without problems. Since I was familiar with this couple, I knew their whining was truly exaggerated because, in truth, they also had a great deal for which to be, to which to be, for which to be grateful. Tell me, I asked them, with well, thanks to Hashem, have you not been married for a number of years already? How many men and women do not succeed in finding a spouse? And thank God you live in marital bliss. How many couples lack such peace between them? And thank God you have been blessed with children. How many people remain childless? You have been blessed with many other spiritual and material, be- and material merits, thank God. And so I sat with this couple and showed them that they truly had very many blessed things in their lives. I also told them, if you would feel true gratitude for everything Hashem has given you, you would not come to me with your whining. Even though it is true that you have suffered tribulations, you would not whine, since you would continue to recognize all the good in your lives. Precisely when things seem to be difficult, we must say, Thank God! If one has true faith that everything is from Hashem and Hashem is all good, then you would be able to thank Hashem even for life's difficult trials. Such praise to Hashem mitigates all harsh judgments. Your whining only makes life more difficult for you. Can we say that those who are happy in life never face difficulties, trials, or tribulations? Of course not. They remain happy despite, despite life's challenges because they constantly express their gratitude to Hashem. They are happy with their lot, no matter what that may be. On the other hand, there are those who feel that their lives are pure torture, not because they suffer more than others but because they don't know how to be grateful. Faith means believing that Hashem is good and being constantly thankful for everything that He gives us. A person's attitude, not the events in one's life, determines whether a person is happy or sad. A happy person accepts anything that comes his way with faith and sincere gratitude. He's appreciative and aware of the miracles in his life. The sad person feels shortchanged all the time, whining and crying about his misfortune. His feeling that life has, is bad only invokes more harsh judgments from above. We are currently up to Ketzal HaShabbos, Ketzal HaShabbos chapter 13, the halacha of grinding, Malachas teichin. One, the principle of the malacha. After the pebbles have been separated from the grain, the common practice is to mill it grinding was done in the mishkan as well as they would grind the ingredients needed to produce dyes not only is one chayav for grinding things that are like grain and herbs which become separate particles through the grinding and that is why we forbid crushing and grinding spices but even cutting up vegetables such as onions into fine pieces and is included in the malacha of taichin. not only that but if one crushes a fruit into particles even if they are all still joined together in one mass, for example, if one grates uncooked apples, but once they are well cooked, it is permitted to mash them, or one mashes potatoes, one is chayev for taichin. Mashing bananas is also similar to this and is included in the malacha of taichin. Two, the guidelines of the malacha. The malacha of taichin does not apply in all cases. These are the guidelines. One, gidule karka, grown from the ground. The Malacha of taychein only applies to things that grow from the ground. It also applies to things that are derived from the earth, such as salt, a clot of earth, a piece of gold, or to filling down any other metal, or to filing down any other metal. Similarly, it is it is forbidden to saw or sand wood in order to produce sawdust. However, other things which do not grow from the ground and are not derived from the ground, such as eggs, meat, cheese, are not subject to the prohibition of taychein. Nevertheless, even by these, tahina grinding, is not permitted in all cases, as we will see below in section 3. (laughs) Samoch l'si'udah, close to the meal. Like the previous malacha of Bayrer, where we differentiated between derech malacha, the manner of malacha, and derech achila, the manner of eating, so too by the malacha of teichin, we differentiate between the manner of malacha and the manner of eating. Just as we discussed there, here too we permit one to be one to do Taichen shortly before eating, provided that one does not use a utensil a utensil that is that is specially designated to be used for this purpose on weekdays. Although strictly speaking, this is the halacha. Nevertheless, since there are those Paiskim that do not differentiate, and they say that taichin applies even shortly before eating, the peskim write that in order to satisfy all opinions, it is proper to not utilize this heter of samoch close to the meal. Some add that even according to those that permit grinding close to the meal, the leniency applies only to those things that are themselves food. But by things that only serve to flavor other foods, such as spices and the like, there's no difference between doing it in advance or close to the meal. Some are even more stringent, and they say that the heter of samoch close to the meal, according to those that permit it, applies only to cutting things into small pieces. But when the grinding is done by mashing, such as mashing bananas, there is also no difference between doing it in advance or close to eating. There is no malacha of trina after trina, grinding after grinding. This means that something that has already been ground up once, even if the particles are subsequently joined back together, is not subject to the prohibition of taichin. Shinoi, a deviation from the usual manner. Although by other Malachis there is no difference whether one does it in its usual way or in an unusual way, because even though by doing it in an unusual way one takes away the Torah prohibition, nonetheless one is still left with a rabbinic prohibition. Nevertheless, by taichin it is permitted, even by rabbinic law for eating purposes, to perform taichin in an unusual manner as we will see below for further elaboration in each one of these guidelines. Three, derech in a weekday manner. Even by those things that are not subject to the prohibition of t'ichayin, nevertheless, Chazal did not permit us to do t'ichayin to them with the utensil that is specifically designed for that purpose during the week. The reason for this is because of Uvda d'chayil. It is considered a weekday activity. Therefore, by all those things that one is permitted to be taichin, for example, things that were already ground once, or things that do not grow from the ground, and also by doing taichin close to the meal. However, there, there may even be a Torah prohibition to use a designated utensil. One may not use a utensil which is specially designed for this use during the week. 4. Dvarim Karka Things that do not grow from the ground. Thus, one is permitted to crumble cheese or to cut up meat or eggs and the like into very small pieces because they do not grow from the ground. However, as we have discussed above, one may not use a utensil which is designated for that purpose on weekdays. Therefore, it is forbidden to grate the cheese with a grater, and it is forbidden to chop meat or eggs with a knife that is designated for that purpose during the week, i.e. a chopping knife. And the same applies to anything else like this. Five, Samoch Uda close to the meal. We have already mentioned above that ideally it is appropriate not to utilize the hetter of samachlisuda close to the meal in order to satisfy the opinion of the paiskin that do not make this distinction between doing it close to the meal and doing it in advance. Therefore, when one cuts up onions on Shabbos morning for the day meal, it is proper to not cut them into very small pieces, but rather to cut them into slightly large pieces, because in that way the prohibition of taichin is more lenient. However, Bidi Eved, when there is a need... One who cuts them into very small pieces close to the meal has pie upon whom to rely. Here, too, as by bayrer, it is only considered close to the meal when it is close to the time that people are leaving shul. Also, we have already mentioned that when utilizing this heter, one may possibly transgress even a Torah prohibition if one uses a utensil that is designated for that use during the week. And therefore, one must be very careful not to use such a utensil. As for a pounding pepper and the like, which is not eaten itself, but only serves it to flavor the food, one should be stringent even close to the meal and should not pound it unless one uses two shinoyen, two deviations from the usual way of doing it. For example, using the handle of a knife and doing it on the table as opposed to a utensil that is designated for it and the like. As for mashing bananas and the like or mashing cooked potatoes or apples, it is only permitted to mash them close to the meal according to the above-mentioned opinion that permits... Taichen when it is close to the meal. Also as we have already written below, also as we have already written above, there are those that require one to always use a Shinoi, an unusual method with this type of taichen, As we will see below for what is considered an acceptable Shinoi. Six, Ein There is no malacha of grinding after grinding. Since there is no malacha of grinding after grinding, it is permissible to crumble bread or cookies or matzah, even in such a way that they are crumbled into very small particles. The reason for this is, since they have already been ground one time, i.e. they are made from flour, which is from kernels that have already been ground, the malacha of taichin does not apply to them. Here, too, one should not crumble them with a utensil that is designated for that use during the week. However, here also there are some pie skin, there are those pieskim that are stringent, and they say that one should not crumble things that have already been ground, except close to the meal. Seven, shinoi, a deviation from the usual manner. Although we permit grinding in an unusual manner, i.e. with a shinoi for eating purposes, not every shinoi qualifies for us to permit it, but only a shinoi that changes the way that the act of grinding itself is performed, meaning that during the week one would not do it in this manner because it is a little difficult to do it that way. However, it does not help to merrily change from the usual place that it is done or similar deviations from the usual because that is not an adequate shinoi to permit this. Thus, to mash an apple with a fork or a knife, or to mash a banana with the handle of a fork or spoon, and likewise, to to mash a potato with the handle of a fork is permitted, since it is not done that way during the week because it is a little difficult to do so. It is therefore considered a good shinoi. However, it is not called a shinoi for this purpose if one merely mashes it on the table or the like, as that is not considered a good enough shinoi. Nevertheless, we have already mentioned that there are Paiskim that are lenient to say that one is al- that one is always permitted to do taichin close to the meal, in a situation where it is needed, even without a shinoi. Therefore, in case of need, one should present the question to a rav. Eight shchikas samamonim, pulverizing herbs for medicine for medicinal purposes. Chazal decreed that one should not engage in refua, medications and therapeutic treatments on Shabbos except where it is permitted, as in cases of illness so that one should not come to pulverize medicinal herbs and transgress the malacha of taichin, as we will see below in chapter 44, which is a separate chapter dedicated to the topic of refuah on Shabbos. We are up the sharei Tshuva, the gates of repentance, the third gate, clarifying the stringency of the mitzvahs and prohibitions, and the different classifications of punishment, the first level. The first level is the stringency associated with the rabbinic rulings. The Torah requires us to accept the decrees of the prophets and the judges, to heed the rulings of the sages, and to carefully comply with their restrictions. As the Pusik says in the Varm chapter 17, verse 11, you must not deviate from what they tell you, right or left. Even though we have been exhorted by the Torah to commit ourselves to do all that the sages instruct us, nonetheless, a positive commandment of the Torah carries with a greater stringency than a rabbinic ruling. This is so because its principle is clearly mentioned in God's Torah, and he has specifically commanded us regarding its fulfillment. There are, however, certain ways and aspects associated with rabbinic rabbinic rulings that are of greater stringency than Torah injunctions, as our Sages of Blessed Memory said in Sanhedrin 88b. There is a stringency to rabbinic rulings over Torah injunctions. One who says there is no such thing as the mitzvah of of tefillin, his intention being to violate the Torah's injunction regarding tefillin, is not liable. Yet if one says and worn on the head have five teitafais, his intention being to add to the rabbinic ruling, he is liable. They also said in Brachas 4b, anyone who violates a rabbinic ruling is punishable with death. Now you need to know, why does one who violates a rabbinic ruling evoke the death penalty more so than one who transgresses a positive or negative commandment? The explanation is as follows. One who violates a rabbinic ruling, one who has the audacity Thus, does so by treating their dictates lightly and not because the Itzahara has prevailed over him. Rather, his sight has been dimmed, preventing him from seeing the brightness of their words. He walks not in the radiance of faith. He refuses to be bound by their decree. He does not bother to, f- to fulfill their dictum, since it is not written clearly in the Torah, and he does not behave as one who has violated the words of the Torah should whose soul is embittered and anguished over his situation and who is concerned and troubled by Zaytzer enticing him to sin. Consequently, he deserves the death penalty for casting down even one from among all their beneficial rulings, as if to say, let us break their bonds. Tehillim, chapter 2, verse 3. This is similar to what the Pussik states regarding an elder who rebels against a ruling of the sages. Devarim, the chapter 17, verse 12. But the man who acts brazenly to not listen to the Kayin, A second reason such an individual is far removed from repentance for due to his not treating this matter matter with sufficient severity, he continuously persists in his foolishness. As such, the punishment associated with a sin of lesser severity is greater than that of more serious ones, since the sinner constantly succumbs to his sin over and over. Our sages of blessed memory have further said in Avaita 35a, for your love is better than wine. Shir Hashirim, chapter 1, verse 2. Rabbinic rulings are more beloved than the wine of Tyra. We must clarify this as well. Know well that fearing Hashem is the basis of all mitzvahs, as the Pusik says in the Varm, chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Yisrael, what does Hashem, your God, request of you? Only to fear Hashem, your God. Through this, Hashem favors His His creations, as the Pusik says in Tehillim, chapter 147, verse 11. Hashem favors those who fear Him. The rabbinic decrees and their and their restrictions are the basis for following the path to fear of Hashem. They create a fence and a distancing, preventing one from contact with the prohibition of the Torah. Just the way an owner of a field fences in his field because of its prized value, for he fears lest people enter his property and turn it into a place for the grazing of cattle and the roaming of sheep. The above stated concept is similar to what it says, you shall safeguard my restrictions in Vayikra chapter 18, verse 30. Make a safeguard for my safeguards. Yavama is 20, 21a. Extreme vigilance, a fence, and distancing from prohibitions is fundamental to fearing Hashem. One who expands on his vigilance will come to a, to the great reward, as the Pusik says in Tehillim chapter 19, verse 12. Moreover, your servant is careful with them and safeguarding them. There is a, bonding, there is a bounding reward. Therefore, the sages said, Rabbinic rulings are more beloved than the wine of Tyra, since their restrictions and decrees derive from the principle of the fear, from the principles of the fear of Heaven, and the reward for the mitzvah of fearing Hashem is much greater than that of many mitzvot, since it is the basis for them. An example of this is one who safeguards himself from being alone with a woman, as our sages of blessed memory have decreed in Sanhedrin 21b, out of fear that he may fall into sin. This is one whose soul radiates with the light of godly fear. We have prefaced in the gate of fear how one is obligated to observe and understand children and to distinguish between one who is perverse and warped and one who goes upright. All of this for an exalted purpose, as we indicated there. Now, when you see gluttonous people who disregard the need to wash their hands before meals, who sit and eat bread without reciting the bracha before and after the meal, and flout the restrictions of many other such rabbinic rulings and enactments, Through this they can be appraised, and through this you will be able to know and discern their ways, for they are exceedingly evil and sinful towards Hashem, and their end will be eternal ruin. It is in respect to these that the sages said, anyone who violates a rabbinic ruling is punishable with death. This is because these actions are not forced by one's Yetzer. These people are not swayed to sin as a result of their earthiness, through their physical desire, They emerge solely from one's evil disposition and the desire to throw off the yoke of heaven from their necks. Indeed, they are like the throng of that class of evildoers who say to God, Leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. These, too, are far from the way of truth. In like manner is that group that is not heedful when concerning the cheese of Gentiles and food cooked by Gentiles, for they belittle the rulings of our sages. Although they sin merrily to fill their stomachs, they have disgraced the words of the sages and have broken the yoke of Tyra and awe of Hashem. Our sages were referring to them only. The, our sages were referring to them also when they said anyone who violates a rabbinic ruling is punishable with death, as we have previously explained. A second reason: for after realizing that the holy nation is careful to observe all of these, they completely separate themselves from our nation and disaffiliate themselves from the norms of the community. Regarding this, our Sages of Blessed Memory said in Rosh Hashanah 17a, those who disaffiliate themselves from the norms of the community, descend to Gehennem and are sentenced to be there for all generations. Know that for one who violates the rabbinic rulings, a Beisdin is empowered to administer lashing against rebelliousness, makas mardus, in accordance with what the court sees fit for chastising and punishing at that time, whether to administer less than close to 40 lashes or to add to these. We are now up to purity of speech, day 53. In today's day and age, when the task of laundry means pressing a button on the washing machine and turning on the dryer, it's hard for us to imagine it as a a back-breaking chore, and so it was not long ago in Yerushalayim. Edel woke up early to get a head start on the old day chore of washing laundry. The water had to be boiled, the stains rubbed by hand, and every article of clothing hung up on the line to dry. After five hours, her work was finally done, but alas, something unexpected happened. Her neighbor, Rachel, who coming home from a long day at the market when she felt something wet on her face, what chutzpah she yelled, all oh, Edel's laundry blocking my way, I'll teach her a lesson. Rachel then took a pair of scissors and cut the laundry line. Within minutes, the entire load of laundry was spread on the ground. When Edel noticed what happened, her first impulse was a feeling of anger at her neighbor. Then she told herself, Then she told herself, This is a Nisayan. Will yelling and berating Rachel get me anywhere? Is there need for more strife in the world? How greatly rewarded are those who keep peace? Edel firmly resolved not to utter a word about it to anyone. It was around midnight when there was knocking on Edel's door. Edel's husband, Yosef, answered. There stood Rachel in a panic. My son came down with very high fever. I'm sure it's a punishment for what I did to your wife. I must ask her forgiveness. Yosef asked in surprise, what did you do to my wife? She didn't tell me anything. A year later, Edel gave birth to a son who became one of the greatest Talmidei Chachamim. Great men who heard this story said it was in the schuss of her not getting angry and controlling herself from speaking Lashon Hara, even to her husband, about her neighbor. Halacha in practice. To whom is it forbidden to speak Lashon Hara? To one's spouse. Some people think that it is okay for husband and wife to have free-ranging conversations. This is false. The Isar of Lashon Hara applies even between husband and wife. If either spouse wants to discuss negative information for a constructive purpose, all rules of ta'elis must be met, as we will see in day 83. Also, if one is emotionally hurt, then he may share his feelings with his spouse or a friend. For example, you are a teacher, and one of the principals in your school insulted you. You may tell your friend or spouse about it, and that he or she can help you deal with the situation. 1. If possible, try not to reveal the name of the person who hurt you. Two, if possible, try to tell only one relative or friend about it so that he or she can make you feel better. You have no right to telling a few people about it, thereby spreading negative inf- information about your principal. Three, the person to whom you choose to unburden yourself should be someone who is careful in hilchas Salashan, and preferably the type who will help you view your boss in a positive light. Don't choose someone who will make you feel even more angry at the principal. Such a person might even tell you, oh, how disgusting. I always knew your boss was nasty. How could she have said such a thing?